Podcastle, episode 348, for January 29th, 2015. Testimony of Samuel Frobisher, regarding events upon Her Majesty's ship Confidence, 14th through the 22nd of June, 1818, with diagrams. Rated R, contains violence and some gore, oddly no diagrams. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. It's no shock to those of you who have been listening for a while that I love stories set at sea. I've been thinking about why this is the past few months. Anna and I were talking a while back and she confided in me that before we started doing Podcastle, she wasn't a huge fan of nautical stories, which is funny considering how many of them we've loved and run here. For us, it all started with the Mermaid's Tea Party and ever since then, She's discovered an unknown love for them. For me, I've tried to track down a little bit where my love for these kind of nautical fantasies come from. The other night I was talking with my daughter about why I enjoyed ghost stories so much, and that kind of leads to my love for nautical fantasies as well. Scary ghost stories, something she hasn't come to love yet. And I think I traced it back to when I was in the fifth grade. And I spent the night on a replica of Henry Dana's The Brig Pilgrim in Dana Point, which was the inspiration for his book, Two Years Before the Mast. This was one of the fondest memories I have of a field trip. My class was all assigned to be different parts of the crew and role play all the day and all night. There was a galley crew and deckhand crew, which I was part of, and a rowing crew, which took a rowboat out in the mornings. Well, while role-playing that night, the captain of the ship, whose name also happened to be Thompson, told us an absolutely killer ghost story about sailors who found an uncanny ship whose passengers were frozen, maybe dead. But the captain in the story and his first mate saw a beautiful woman with an even more beautiful ring on her finger. They pried the ring off her finger, but it snapped, and the whole finger came off. I was like 10 years old when I heard this story, and I'm pretty sure I can still recite the whole thing for you beat for beat. I started doing that with my daughter, who was begging me to tell her about the story. And I started to, but when her eyes got really big with the finger coming off, I changed my mind and decided it might be better to water it down just a little bit and kind of skip around. Hopefully, some of you know how to sail, because I'm at a total loss. But I can tell ghost stories or ask my friends to tell them to you, which is exactly what we're doing here this week. So, when this story came in, well, let's just say it hit my squids. Here's how author Ian Tregillis describes what inspired him to write this one. This story was inspired by the HMS Challenger, a Royal Navy warship that was outfitted for the first full-scale oceanographic expedition in the world. Back in the 1870s, it spent three years charting and dredging the seafloor. It led to the discovery of thousands of new species. However, during the voyage, two sailors drowned, two went mad, and one committed suicide. Wow. So, um, all hands on deck, right? Podcastle is very proud to present... Testimony of Samuel Frobisher regarding events upon His Majesty's ship, Confidence, 14 through the 22nd of June, 1818, with diagrams, written by Ian Tregellis, originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, 
This was the first issue that C.C. Finley guest edited, and I'm super excited to see what he does now that he's taking over the magazine. Ian Tregillis is the author of the Milkweed Triptych series and Something More Than Night. His newest novel, The Mechanical, is forthcoming in March 2015. His website is iantregillis.com, and he lives in New Mexico where he consorts with writers, scientists, and other disreputable types. Your reader this week is really one of the best kinds of men to pass your time with at sea, the one and only Ian Stewart, who's read multiple stories for us at Pseudopod and Podcastle. Most recently, you might recall him gracing our show reading La Vitadar's Titanic. So, be on the lookout, because there's something overboard. Enjoy the story. Testimony of Samuel Frobisher Regarding events upon His Majesty's Ship Confidence, 14th to the 22nd of June, 1818, with diagrams, by Ian Tregillis. I joined His Majesty's Royal Navy in 1808, and a man more grateful for the press gangs you'll never meet. To answer your questions, sirs, I spent four years in the service of Captain Nares, R.I.B.L.D., the tentacled bride. A brave and virtuous soul was the captain, never given to rage nor drink during my years with him, and upon my oath never once did he take the lash to a sailor's back without just cause, before she arrived. But he changed the moment that accursed creature slithered upon the deck. Begging your pardon, sirs. I lost much of my earring on the last voyage of the Confidence. Ah, ah, I, I get ahead, ahead of myself. I'll start at the beginning. The Confidence cut a fine feather when we sailed from Portsmouth in March of 18. Just over half the full crew complement we had, plus five more souls, Dr. Thompson and his men. If you'll have my opinion, says Thompson deserved his invitation to the gallows dance, and damn him twice for the expedition. That dandy nearly turned our frigate into a floating laboratory. In Portsmouth, we loaded the bric-a-brac of his scientifical pursuits. We removed sixteen, sixteen guns to make room for the nets and dredges. Thompson also brought a dozen casks of pickling alcohol aboard. He tried ordering the purser to heave the rum, but Mr. Newcomb told Thompson to shove off Royal Society or no. Still, we'd been at sea but a few days when we found that Thompson's men had unloaded some of the rum themselves. I'll tell you this, the prospect of thin grog won Thompson no friends among the seamen. We'd have liked to teach that dandy a lesson, and Evie's precious pickling alcohol. But he kept those casks locked away in the hold, along with the remainder of the rum. No crew worked harder, even in war. Thompson enjoyed the old man's blessing, so never a day passed when we didn't work the dredges. Living beings exist over the whole floor of the ocean, was his refrain. He'd bluster if the tiniest worm went overboard before he had a chance to examine it. Many of the beasties we culled from those nets were curious and frightful things, not seen by men before. Fishes that glowed like lanterns, strange creatures more mouth than body, and other oddments. If it be of interest, I've sketched a few as best I remember them. 
Our catches went into the many jars that Thompson and his men brought. Captain Nares gave them the run of the wardroom, winning Thompson no love from the lieutenants either, and soon he reeked of preservative spirits. Often I heard those jars clinking together during high seas. Our voyage were peaceful, but for an engagement with French pirates off Bermuda. Though we had just half our guns, we bested them easily. I do wonder what might have happened if, in our zeal, we hadn't sunken that brigantine before we could capture it. With a prize to be had, Captain Nares would have set a different course to claim our head and gun money. The only casualty of French treachery on that particular day was my earring, after a mishap with a dry sponge on one of the twelve-pounders. Wythe, our surgeon, packed my ears with flannel and wrapped me head in bandages until I looked like a sultan from Persia. <laughs> I dozed much, owing to his sleeping draughts. We swayed hard to larboard two mornings after. Another engagement, if we're lucky, I thought. Else it's another whim of that damnable Thompson. He were mad to catch a leviathan in his nets. I knew. Phineas grew. A waster, but still my mate. He fetched me soon after. I asked if Thompson had sighted another mermaid. There was a commotion on deck, he said. In truth, my ears rung so badly that his words to me were more a mixture of yells and gestures. But his meaning came clear, and the gist was as I described it. I smelt an odour on his breath, and not the watered-down grog we hands were drinking. It stung the eyes. I wondered if he'd been hoarding his tots, or somehow found a way to bolster his grog. Up top, the deckhands were cutting away one of the dredges. It seemed we were snagged on something, and so the captain had ordered the net abandoned. <laughs> I was only sorry I couldn't hear Thompson howl in protest. Rogers, a folksleman, dived into the sea with a line round his waist. Man overboard, I wondered. With much effort, Phineas bellowed the old man's words into my ear. Hold steady, madam. Madam? I craned my neck to and fro. But all I saw was a mass of seaweed tangled in the net, for we were amidst the sea called Sargasso, black and oily. It was a scab on the water. Rack like this I had never seen, but it was wrapped in Thompson's net, and so had come from the depths. I pinched my nose against the stink of rot. Mayhap Thompson had found his prize after all, and this was the carcass of some dread leviathan. Still I could not see the mysterious lady, to whom the captain directed his encouragements. But the sun had just crossed the main yardarm, and the glare on the sea was bright. Was there a dinghy caught in that mess? As we lowered the boatswain's chair for her, Rogers swam into that stinking rack. A wave tossed vines over his head, and he forever disappeared. If not for the glare, I might have seen him flailing about and raised a cry. At worse, my mates paid Rogers no eat. They were enchanted, but I didn't yet understand this, nor that my injury had spared me. There was no dinghy, there was no lady, but something moved in the boatswain's chair. 
What I thought a tangle of sargassum became a mess of tentacles and claws. But Captain Nares gave the order to heave before I could say anything, and my mates hoisted the chair over the main deck. He stepped aside as that thing slithered aboard in a quivering mass. The creature pulled itself upright, and with much stretching and slithering, sorted itself into the semblance of a woman. With a head, two arms, two legs, its head was a coil of those same tentacles, with a single milky orb in place of an eye, and before its mouth hung a curtain of hook-tipped tendrils. Terror etched that sight into my eyelids, whence it still comes at night to haunt my dreams. I've, I've rendered to paper the truest likeness I'm able of the, of the thing that Captain Nares welcomed aboard the Confidence. I, I could do better work by carving, but you've seen me, Scrimshaw, sirs. Mayhap you'll grant me a crumb of talent and agree. Twas no lady we pulled from the sea. I made to fetch Dr. Thompson, nearly bowling old Phineas aside in my hurry and fear. But then I saw the doctor was already there, gazing upon the monster with tenderness. Every shiver of her body sent the twin stinks of rot and death across the deck, but not a single man covered his nose. I served his majesty in the war, I've seen decks slippery with the insides of men, but I've never smelt anything like the tentacled bride. I leaned over the rail and tossed me hard biscuits and grog into the sea like some rubber-legged dandy on his first voyage. Into my ear, Phineas shouted, She has the sweetest voice, like an angel. But I could hear nothing. With much repetition, I did gain the following yarn from Phineas. He must have yelled himself hoarse, relating it to me. A London gentleman and his new bride were bound for her uncle's Jamaica plantation when raiders beset their sloop. They pilfered every gem and bauble, then executed the crew before her very eyes. When the bride pleaded for her beloved's life, the raider's chief sliced off her man's ear. For whispering sweet nothings, he said, and laughed. They set the sloop aflame, took her man, and left her to die. She floated amidst the flotsam nigh three days. Head shook, and fists clenched all round. Captain Nares ripped the fore and after from his head, and kneaded the hat in a white-knuckled fury. A gathery vowed to catch the raiders and rescue her husband. I fully expected Thompson to object at the notion of his nets idle and his sample jars unfilled, but he did not. She writhed anew and offered the oozing vines of her arms to the captain. He held out his hand, and the beast deposited in his cupped palms something glistening and red. No surgeon am I, but... As I said, I've seen the insides of men, and this object was just that. But twasn't poor Roger's heart, no monster's trophy the captain saw. He declared it would be kept in Thompson's preservatives until we found her husband, so Wythe could reattach the man's ear. No, sirs, I've not heard of such physic either. 
but that's how Phineas told it me as near as I could make out. As for what evil compelled the beast to preserve a man's heart, I could not fathom. Only much later, after our doom was apparent, did her purpose become clear. Lieutenant Prescott ordered us back to work. The murderous beast looped a tentacle round the captain's elbow, and she slithered away with him, but as she did, she peered back at me with that hideous orb. I swear to you, sirs, that it twinkled. And that is how the tentacled bride came to live with us, aboard the Confidence. After that, Captain Nares spent much time closeted with her, except when ordering a new course. Soon we would overtake her assailants, he insisted. Every man put his back, no, his very soul, into the effort. The boatswain's mates got free with their starters. I, I know you banned them, sirs, and grateful I am for it, but on my oath, any seaman who didn't devote himself to the bride's cause felt the sting of a rattan cane across the shoulders. Even Thompson stowed his nets and dredges to speed our voyage, and voiced nary a complaint. I, sirs, I did try to warn me mates about the beast with every breath I could spare. But they'd have none of it. Jack Nasty Face, they called me. Soon even the other men in my mess could barely stand to take meals with me. The dislike for me grew daily, as did my dread of what awaited at our destination something far worse than a ship of rogues, I feared. Night after night my dreams took me to a cold abyss. A slumbering presence lurked in those depths, the darkness echoed with chants in a language I couldn't understand. Nor could any man, for I sensed it was somehow older than the sea itself. On evenings when the sea was calm and the sun a smear of orange on the horizon, the captain escorted the bride along the deck, tentacle in arm. She even carried a parasol the crew had made. Oh, they saw her as a lady of milk-white skin, you see, and it was the height of summer on the open waves. The confidence had become a ship of madmen. No image could explain it better. So I've sketched it that you might see the extent of the madness that had gripped the crew. I remember the scene well, but I'd watched them from my perch in the rigging, stealing glances as I struck the yards. And sometimes I'd look down only to find the bride gazing up at me. These evening constitutionals I hated the most, but the bride left a trail of filth and ooze wherever she trod, and it remained that smell, even after we scrubbed and holy stoned the deck. But by now the crew was so tangled in her spell that nobody noticed, or mayhap they didn't care. It was during one of these strolls that, in desperation, I set upon a new tack. I crept up behind a boatswain's mate and stuck my fingers in his ears, hoping to free him from her charms so he'd see the beast as I saw her. But it did no good. Her spell was not so easily broken. He responded with his starter and so I got the cane, and worse for my trouble. The bride had seen me, and my attempt to put the lie to her disguise wouldn't stand with her. The captain jabbed a finger at me, then to the planking beneath his feet. I presented myself with all speed. The bride slithered close to us. 
It was a struggle not to befoul myself when the fullness of her putrid stink came over me. The captain leaned near to her. Her tendrils danced on the edge of his ear. Not for the first time. I wondered what he heard. We nodded and muttered and nodded some more. When he straightened again to glower down at me from his full height, I saw in his face no sign of the man that I'd served for years. He regarded me with cold, black eyes, more shark than man, then mustered the crew. His purpose came clear enough when the boatswain's mate stripped me shirt and seized me to the capstan bar. If the captain read the articles and declared my guilt to the crew, I didn't hear him. My offence? Nothing, sirs. And may God smite me if that isn't the truth. I'm guilty for my role in bringing the confidence to her end, but until that last day, I minded my duties. There was naught else I could do. Twelve times the lash ate skin from my back. Couldn't fathom the source of the boatswain's rage. He flogged me with such glee that at six lashes I cried for mercy. At ten I begged. Another dozen might have finished me. Phineas helped me to my hammock. He must have been ordered, else he wouldn't have. Both of us with unfocused eyes and unsteady gait. But twas his secret alterations to the grog, not concern for me, that affected him so. I lay there all night with the hammock pressed into my face. I didn't sleep. Aye. Many an hour I've spent wondering why she didn't kill me straight away, and oft wishing that she had. Short-handed as we were, the confidence couldn't spare many crewmen if we were to reach our destination. She had other plans for us, and powerless as I was to waken the men from their trances, I posed no threat to her. Though I was the first, I wasn't the only man on the confidence to get the lash for the bride's amusement. Nor was I the only one to watch the captain and the bride together. So did Thompson. With his expedition dropped by the wayside, he had no work to occupy him, and this freed him to imagine himself on evening strolls with ladies in distress. His gaze followed the pair, envy plain on his face for all to see. Thompson got his chance to visit with her the day after my flogging, when Captain Nares excused himself to confer with Quartermaster Pasley. Soon the two officers were embroiled in charts, eddings, and the best course for laying siege to the Phantom Raiders. Thompson seized the opportunity. He disappeared below and quickly returned with armloads of sketches from his unused laboratory. He stood on the main deck, lonely man and writhing beast. Did she express a ladylike admiration of his education? Whatever her act, I doubt she enjoyed that gallery of dissected sea life. No true lady would. Yet worse for Thompson, these were the bride's kith and kin, sliced open and catalogued. But he smiled and laughed and even felt emboldened. This last I know because he laid his hand on the tendrils of her arm. I didn't know whether to be more shocked that he would take such a liberty with a hideous creature, like I saw, or with a fragile and sophisticated lady, as he no doubt saw. It was hot day, and even hotter up top. 
I passed the pair on my way to the butt for a mug of water to quench me thirst. She had Thompson's ear, much the way she'd whispered to the captain when she urged him to flog me. His bearing was that of a man paying the strictest attention, nodding slowly and muttering. Though my ears were improving, they still rung like church bells at Christmas, so I couldn't hear him. Her orb twinkled at me over his shoulder. I drained my mug with haste and got away from her. The old man returned soon after that and sent Thompson packing. He went below with his sketches, still nodding and jabbering. I didn't see him for the rest of the day. Now, I know you are men of honour and character, sirs, never having felt the lash yourself, but a topman's chores make it difficult for the wounds to heal, and the wounds turn any attempt at sleep into agony. And the dreams had long since robbed my sleep of restfulness. So I welcomed my shift on watch that night. I had a quid of tobacco left in my cap and chewed all of it. It eased my pain, but not my unease. I jumped at every shadow for fear that the bride would come slithering out of the night and do to me what she'd done to Rogers. I longed for the soothing noises of a ship under sail at night, but these were lost to me yet I found I could still apprehend the familiar rhythms of our frigate. I tried to find comfort in the sway of the deck against the soles of my feet, the vibrations of the mainmast against my fingertips as cables sang through the blocks. But a new rhythm played itself out in her rigging too. Somewhere in the shadows overhead, a cable had come loose. Occasionally, on the leeward side of larger swells, the mast shuddered as if struck by one of the yards. I'd been a topman for five years, but couldn't place that rattling. But still, my ears rung badly, and so I blamed the confusion on that. Elsewise, I reckoned I'd know the problem at once. My dreams again took me to that watery abyss when I finally managed to sleep after the watch. A chanting had reached a frenzy as if that ageless slumber were coming to an end. My mates woke me when they jostled my hammock in their haste for the main deck. I wondered aloud at the commotion, but none would answer me, so I followed. Captain Nares, the officers, and the bride ringed the mainmast. Most of the crew was there, too. All craned their necks upward to where Thompson swung, purple and lifeless from the Tagallant yard. How that walrus managed to gain the Tagallant, I've no idea. I did get a closer look at his corpse than I'd have liked, but while the captain laughed, Lieutenant Prescott dispatched us topmen to lower the body. Thompson had tied a line about his neck and jumped, though he hadn't made a proper noose. He died gasping. We lowered him, hand over hand. The life of science must be good, sirs, for his girth was considerable. As I hung there in the rigging, straining to lower the body with dignity, I spotted a black stain upon the larboard sea, a writhing mass, like that which had produced the bride but thrice the size of our frigate. The wind had a sourness upon it too that brought gorge to my throat. I lost my grip, nearly took a tumble, I caught myself, but let Thompson go. 
and no time to shout a warning to the others, so they lost their grip on old Thompson too, and he plummeted to the deck. I scrambled down. The captain seethed. He opened his mouth, no doubt to order another flogging, when Lieutenant Prescott shouted something. From his bearing, and the way he pointed, I gathered it was, Ship ahoy! Captain Nares gazed through his Brigham near at the blotch on the sea. The bride murmured in his ear. I didn't need to hear him to know what came next. All hands to stations! The confidence made straight for that churning mass. We'd reached the bride's destination. Of course there were no ships on the horizon, but men bolted to their stations as though the captain was Nelson and our destination Cape Trafalgar. The crew lowered the boats to clear the deck, gathered their axes and pikes, and readied the twelve-pounders to fire on our invisible foe. Where I saw tentacles and rot, they saw a brigantine, peopled with rogues and murderers. A single bride had driven this entire ship to madness. How many monsters would join her when we entered that foul nest? The captain's eyes were wide. Foam flecked the corners of his mouth when he snapped at Slade, another seaman, who went below. Then the captain pulled me close and bellowed in my ear, Fetch wife! No doubt he wanted the surgeon on hand to attend to the bride's husband. But I'm a coward, and I confess my guilt. This order I disobeyed, and so violated Article 22. Instead, in my panic... I made to escape in one of the cutters now trailing behind the confidence. I had to get away. But the bride saw this. She must have called out, for Prescott and a pair of deckhands surrounded me. Phineas Grew was one, his breath still strong enough to curl a man's toes. Before I found the king's shilling in my ale, sirs, the whoring life had taught me few things of value— but brawling was one of these, so when he came for me, I treated him to a solid crack across the jawbone for his trouble, uh, and, and so violated Article 23. We shuddered to a stop, just as I made to dive overboard. I fell, knocking me crown on the deck. A deckhand pinned me arms from behind when I tried to stand. Prescott rounded on me. Past his shoulder I'd glimpsed tendrils of seaweed and filth slithering over the bow. It should have been the last sight of my life. But just as Prescott drew his sword to skewer me, Slade handed the captain a jar of grey slime. I knew right then that Phineas's secret drink hadn't been rum after all. He'd been drinking Thompson's pickling alcohol. But with those casks locked away in the hold, he'd been forced to sip from the sample jars, mayhap replacing the remainder with bilge water as he went. Whatever he'd done, it had ruined the bride's trophy, for Roger's heart had rotted away. She yanked the jar from Captain Nares, smashing it to the deck. Her head tipped back, 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 and the curtain of tendrils on her face fluttered as though in a vicious gale. Seamen and officers alike dropped to the deck, clutching bloodied ears. The bride speared Captain Nares square in the chest with a single tentacle. Then she unraveled and smothered his screams under a putrid mass while she tore a new trophy, still beating from his body. 
The tendrils streaming over the bow took new forms, each like the bride herself, and started feeding on the crew. I nearly became a meal myself, and had to wrest the sword from Lieutenant Prescott to fend them off. One by one, they claimed the crew's hearts, and just as in my dreams I sensed the chanting, sensed it not with my ears, but deep in the marrow of my bones, with every heart they took, that chanting became more feverish. Why? I do not know, sirs. Perhaps they meant to feed their trophies to that thing, stirring in the deep as a mother suckles a newborn. They swarmed around us, but I couldn't die for a cutter, for the very sea was alive with tentacles that whipped the water into a froth. The confidence reared back, tossing me aft. Then she smashed the waves and I tumbled fore again. A cavernous moor emerged from the sea, half again the height of the mainmast. I glimpsed that thing no more than a blink, but I'll not forget it. Look, look at my sketch, sirs, you'll know why. Merely abandoning the confidence wouldn't save me. I had to kill as many of these beasts as I could, if I wished to make me escape, and if I died in the attempt, then at least I'd have died a proper mariner's death, and not in some monster's gullet. I fought my way to the hatch, my goal the forward magazine. So many vines of seaweed did I slice that I felt like an explorer, hacking his way through the jungles of darkest Africa. Prescott's sword was black with slime by the time I got below deck. The magazine sentries had abandoned their posts, and for this I was grateful. I had no wish to cut down my own crewmates. I smashed the magazine window with the hilt of Prescott's sword, then flung the magazine lantern inside. I, again, I am guilty, sirs, for I thus violated Article 25, and set fire to the magazine, and so did deliberate harm to a ship of His Majesty's Royal Navy. I dashed back to the deck with all haste as the confidence shuddered under the weight of the thing that now consumed her up to the mainmast. Tentacles lined with suckers, stingers, and hooks flailed at me as I made for the taffrail. They grasped my ankles and my wrist, but I'd not be here now had they gained my sword arm too. The magazine blew before I could dive overboard, and the confidence's bow erupted in smoke and fire. The blast hurled me into the sea, battered and bleeding. Bits of stinking rack and charred timber rained upon me while I gained the nearest cutter. I released the boat and started rowing. I watched her sink, sirs. The smoking ruins of the confidence slid into the sea, ferrying the remains of that giant beast back to the depths. I rowed long after she disappeared beneath the waves, paying no mind to the lash wounds upon my back, so desperate was I to put the horizon between me and the last resting place of the confidence. Little crumbs of sargassum, debris from the explosion, swirled around the oars as I rowed, but they stayed abreast of the cutter, even when the only sign of our frigate was a distant smear of black smoke on the blue sky, well outside the range of the blast. The sea behind the cutter turned green, then black, as more seaweed collected in my wake, and it kept pace with me, sir, no matter how hard I rode. I collapsed from exhaustion near sunset, and remember nothing more, until I awoke aboard the Vigilant. I tried to tell my tale, 
the vigilant surgeon deemed me feverish, so he plied me with sleeping drafts as wife had done. Even so I found no rest. Closing my eyes put me back in the abyss, where it still echoed with that damnable chanting. Though I had no fever, I feigned delirium when the surgeon made to move me. I couldn't bear to go up top. Out of fear I'd find a message writ upon the waters. Only when we reached Portsmouth did I venture outside. And it was there, just as I knew it would be, a ribbon of black ooze stretching from the harbour to across the sea. So I beg you, sirs, and pray you will not deafen your ears to me. She lurks even now in the uncharted depths, and will rise again when she has healed. I, Samuel Frobisher, do hereby swear that events upon the confidence transpired as I have stated. God save the king. Welcome back. Nautical fantasy fiction. Oh, how I love you. Ghost stories, piratical adventures, so much love. So that story I mentioned in the intro, the one that was told to me while I was on a field trip on the Brig Pilgrim, I can't for the life of me find it, and I'd love to read it again. So help me out here, Podcastle fans, if you know it or if it sounds familiar or you just have better Google food than I do. That would be super appreciated. Point me in the right direction and I'd be much obliged. How obliged, do you want to know? Well, I'd take you on a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. What would we do? Goddamn the dolphin. Raise the fishy bitches. Call up Sir Hereward and Mr. Fitz to go and fight some man-eating monster starfish, damn it. Maybe there's some hag queen who put a curse on me low these many years ago. I don't know why I love them so much. But you see, in my imagination there lies a secret beach where the ghosts of pirates haunt my little imaginary vacation villa. And we can travel with Sinbad on all of his journeys, avoiding mermaids, hooks, and the like. There's a spot for you and me where the sugar cane grows and the golems harvest it. And the rum never runs dry. A place where the krakens rule the deep seas, and we are simply navigators, floating below the starry skies. So, let's go make some sandcastles, shall we? Open a portal to an undersea world. Drink that draught and become monsters to fight the kaiju, or don't, and become men and women, and save what humanity we can. I believe in the kingdom of pirates, my buckos, and do. Let's take that last ship and set sail toward the horizon. If that doesn't sound like fun, I don't know if we could be friends anymore. In other words, I'll be expecting that email shortly. Thanks, you guys. Okay, feedback this week is for why I bought Satan two Cokes on the day I graduated high school. By Nathaniel Lee and read by yours truly. This was kind of the punk rock stoner comedy of a young man about to graduate high school who was taking Satan under his wing during the rule of the angels and... Uh, wait, do I have that backwards? Anyway, people seem to enjoy it, so uh, slushies for everyone. X-Ray Specs said, 
The story really tickled me. I like that it engenders sympathy for the devil without actually making the devil a very sympathetic character. More pathetic than sympathetic. It seemed a lot of folks were intrigued by the Angel of Death's role in this story. Again, X-Ray Specs said, What did he want from the protagonist the whole time? He had opportunities to punish the kid for insolence, but at the end, his response to the kid's explicit critique of him is a mute shrug, not icy wrath. The narrator interprets that as in line with his own epiphany that freedom comes from disregarding others' expectations, but to me, I don't know. Throwing off the expectations of those who are more powerful than you seems pretty heroic. Ignoring the expectations of those whom you may regard as beneath you is a different field entirely. Spare Inch suggested that the Angel of Death was secretly on Satan's side the whole time, and Zebron said, Funny, I thought the Angel of Death was secretly on the narrator's side. Death didn't kill him or send him to a lake of fire, wouldn't let him just sit there during the horrible choosing ceremony, and didn't seem to want to hurt him. The kid realized in the end that despair was a sin, so perhaps the Angel of Death was trying to keep him from sinning by just choosing a horrible life. Maybe the narrator was the only one there, who, besides Death and maybe Satan, who really got it. Maybe that's why the world there seems a little dystopian. Everyone, even most of the angels, are getting it wrong. Wow. Theological implications. I love our forum. How awesome would it be to read seminary papers on this story? I'm dreaming. Maybe. But thank you all for those comments. Come let us know what you thought of the story this week at forum.escapeartist.net. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going so we can bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. If you can't donate, tell your friends about us or swing by poddisc.com and grab some swag from our friends Ari and Kim. Well, that was our show this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, Dave Thompson, Thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with the beginning of our Artemis Rising event, although we may have another dark and twisted tale for you just before then. Oh, and Artemis Rising. That's going to be all of the month of February across all three podcasts. Just to let you know, I'm going to be sitting on the sidelines from that one, cheering and fist pumping. We have some good surprises for you in the hosting department, though, don't you worry. And you'll be hearing from both Anna and I again in March, where we still have one or two or seven tricks up our sleeves. Until then, this is Dave Thompson for Podcastle, reminding you not to drink that preserving alcohol. See you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Ernest Hemingway, who wrote, But man is not made for defeat. A man can be destroyed but not defeated. Thanks for listening. We'll see you real soon.